This is Season 2 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast about Japanese sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not-yet-fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 40 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 2.20, Stealing Time, and we are your hosts. I'm Tom. I'm a lifelong Gundam fan, and like Camille, as a teenager, I too was drawn to girls with issues who ended up hurting me. And I'm Nina, new to Zeta, and kind of uncomfortable with how this episode fails to make the destruction of a densely populated city feel impactful. It's just kind of a thing that happens in the background. Hong Kong in the mid 80s had five and a half million people. This is not like a super coordinated attack, I grant you, but. Yeah, they're carpet bombing a major population center. We hear some screaming um, and there's some smoke and explosions, but uh, yeah, it's um, uncomfortably sanitary. Mobile Soup Breakdown is made possible by the support of 249 patrons. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest patron, Zach S. Patrons, depending on level, get a shout-out on the podcast, entry in all of our seasonal giveaways, recognition on our website, access to a patron discord, bonus content, behind-the-scenes exclusives, and physical Mobile Soup Breakdown merch, like art prints, pins, and t-shirts. Find out more at gundampodcast.com slash Patreon. Don't forget that we still want your questions for our upcoming Q&A episode and your Hot Gundam takes for our first ever forum episode. We need your questions by November 2nd, and we need your takes by November 10th. Send them both to us by email at gundampodcast at gmail.com and put Q&A or forum in the subject line. And now back to episode 2.20. This week, we discuss Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam Episode 19, Cinderella 4, or Shindarera 4. We also research and discuss attachment theory. One big research piece this week. But before we get to that, let's tune in to Titans News Network for a reminder of last week's events. <laughs> Hi there, I'm Lieutenant Tom Thompson. As a famous and respected news broadcaster on Earth's highest rated nightly news program, my life might seem perfect from the outside, but did you know that I used to struggle with painful headaches? There would be calm periods, but afterward the headaches would always return. I had difficulty staying motivated and even experienced feelings of disloyalty. It nearly destroyed my life, but I spoke with my doctor, Namikar Cornell, and she told me that I was suffering from Earth-onset Flanagan Syndrome. She recommended I try Nutipify to control my symptoms. Flanagan Syndrome is most common among space noids and war orphans, but it can affect anyone, and it can hurt in so many ways. Common symptoms include regular, debilitating headaches, difficulty staying on task, insubordinate urges, a feeling of being pulled, loneliness, the desire to be understood, problems remembering important events, people and names, impulsivity, hitchhiking, 
unnatural enthusiasm for flying, disobedience, and a feeling of pressure coming from other people. Nutipify can help. Nutipify is a prescription medication that treats many symptoms of Flanagan syndrome. Tell your doctor right away if your symptoms worsen, you meet any intriguing strangers with whom you seem to feel an immediate attachment, or you experience thoughts of disloyalty, as Nutipify can increase these in children, teens, and young adults. Nutipify is not a cure. There is no cure. But Nutipify can control your symptoms and make you a useful asset for the cause. Side effects include nausea, dry mouth, bouts of uncontrollable rage, memory problems, mood swings, and high blood pressure. Flanagan syndrome hurts, but do as you're told, and Nutipify can help. Head on, apply directly to the cyber new type. Head on, apply directly to... And now our recap for Cinderella 4. The Audumla buzzes with activity. The government of Hong Kong has demanded they leave its waters that very day, and they are rushing to finish preparation by midnight. Camille seems distracted as he works, and when Amuro calls him out for it, he finds himself talking about four. Amuro has felt this feeling, right? This feeling that isn't quite like falling in love, that is somehow more insistent? But Amuro is quick to correct Camille. Any two people with sufficiently good intuition might feel that instantaneous connection. It has nothing to do with being a new type. Overhearing them, Beltorchka thinks he's just fallen in love at first sight. And Amuro seems ready to dismiss it too, until Camille says that it feels like being pulled. At that, Amuro looks at him seriously. And as he walks away from Camille and Beltorchka's simmering argument, he warns Camille to stay away from that girl. Just as Amuro is leaving, Mirai joins them. Let him go, she says to Beltorchka, who seems ready to call Amuro back. Knowing a little about their history, Beltorchka asks Mirai to tell her all about Amuro's experience in the last war, who he fought, how it affected him. She insists that she needs to know, the better to care for him. Despite thinking that this is intrusive, Mirai begins to tell Beltorchka about a Xeon pilot Amuro fought, when Beltorchka seems to recoil and runs away. Now alone with Mirai, Camille waits for her to continue explaining. What would you say about two enemies who barely met, but who changed each other's lives? Mirai asks. I'd say it sounds impossible, he replied. Well, that's what Amuro and Lala were to each other. She was able to completely pull him out of reality, even though she had died. The streets of Hong Kong are bright with neon and bustling with people. Four wanders, oblivious to the traffic that weaves around her, staring as people go about their evening, lost in her own thoughts. At the docks, Camille sneaks off the Audumla and steals a motorcycle. Eventually, a Titans officer finds Four and scolds her for leading them on a chase. Demanding that she return to the Sudori, he calls her Number Four, earning a hard slap and a defiant glare. A sound nearby makes him draw his gun, but the person who emerges from behind a shipping container is Camille. When Four asks what he's doing there, he tells her frankly that he wanted to see her again. Contrite, Four apologizes for slapping the officer and says she needs some time. He smiles understandingly and lets her go, as long as she agrees to carry a tracker. Finally alone, Four runs to Camille and hugs him close as he spins her around both of them smiling and, for the moment, free. They find a rooftop garden and sit among the shining city lights, talking about how strange it is that they are enemies. It's only because of lines adults have drawn, and to four, the only difference between the two sides seems to be their uniforms. They sit next to each other on a bench, Camille tensing when four leans in close to him. She asks him to kiss her, and he does, but when the kiss is over, he stands and walks to the edge of the roof. 
He learns that Four got her name because she was the fourth subject at the Murasame Laboratory. She's a war orphan with no memory of her past, and desperately wants her memories back. Their evening is interrupted by a flash of light and an explosion. The Sudori has begun bombing Hong Kong City, and the Psycho Gundam plows its way down the streets. Namikar reconfigured it so that Wooder could pilot, but he still struggles to control the strange mobile suit. Camille tries to convince Four to desert and to come with him to Ayug, but she is convinced that the Murasame lab can restore her memories. Desperately lonely, without even memories to comfort her, the promise of having her memories restored is what keeps her going. Without memories of her past, Four doesn't know who she is, and she runs from Camille. The Adumla has launched mobile suits to defend Hong Kong, and Amuro is out in the Rick Diaz. On the docks, Camille signals to Amuro with the stolen motorcycle's headlights, and he picks Camille up and takes him back to the Audumla. As he dashes toward the Mark II, Stephanie Luo slaps him for being AWOL and accuses him of not taking this seriously. Camille shrugs her off and hops into the Mark II's cockpit, but thinks to himself that she's just like Wang Li. But a man can't just fight to avoid being beaten. He takes off, headed back toward the city. Wooder loses control of the Psycho Gundam and can't understand what he's doing wrong before he spots Four, glowing blue in the distance. She is drawing the Psycho Gundam to her, and when it reaches her, Wooder happily switches places. Almost immediately, Four becomes distraught. Tears streaming down her face, she cries, What good is this city? What good are new memories without the old ones? In a rage, she blasts and crushes the city around her, including the rooftop garden where she'd spent the evening with Camille. In the Mark II, Camille grabs hold of the Psycho Gundam's head, yelling at its pilot to stop, and he and Afor finally realize the enchanting person they spent the evening with wasn't just an enemy pilot, it was that enemy pilot. Four throws him off and makes for the coast, as Camille keeps trying to tell her that she doesn't need to fight, that she mustn't fight. Amuro doesn't understand what Camille is doing. You're going to get yourself killed, he yells as he shoots the back of the Psycho Gundam, knocking it into the sea and sending Four crashing against the control panels and screens of the cockpit. Camille convinces her to open the cockpit door so they can talk, but while she doesn't want to hurt Camille, she has to destroy the Mark II. The scientists at Murasame Lab have promised to reinstate her memory if she defeats the Mark II mobile suit. Camille doesn't believe that they'll keep their promise and tells her so, but Four is desperate for even the chance to have her memory back. Telling Camille to leave, she closes the cockpit door and restarts the Psycho Gundam. Nearby, Amuro senses that the Psycho Gundam's system is making Four fight, and he tries to pinpoint it so he can disable it, but the Psycho Gundam fires its scattered beams and drives him back, before retreating to the Sudori. After the battle, Mirai decides to stay on Earth for now. As she says her goodbyes, she seems sad that Camille hasn't come to see them off, and reminds Amuro to look after him. From the window of his room, Camille watches the helicopter take Mirai and the children back to Hong Kong, while the Audumla sets a course away from the battered city. This episode spends a lot of time trying to parse what exactly is the nature of Four and Camille's connection. Camille says to Amaro that it's something not quite like falling in love, that it's not the same. He describes it as being a more tangible feeling, though that feels like an odd word choice. <laughs> I don't suppose you checked the Japanese on that one. I actually looked up quite a few words this week. Mm. I feel like the translation for this episode was particularly bad. Mm. 
There's a koshitsu that means to stick to an opinion, theory, belief, like、mm. to cling to. So he could be saying it's a feeling that like clings more than the feeling of falling in love.、Hmm. But that almost makes more sense if he's saying he's a seventeen-year-old boy, so he's fallen for people before, and the feeling that he's having now is very different from the feeling that he had falling for people previously. It's clinging to him more. It's <laughs> affecting him more. It's persistent in his mind more than those feelings had been. Although Beltorchka is very insistent that this is just that thing people call love at first sight. Well, Amaro seems to think so too. Up until Camille says that it feels as if he's being pulled to her.、Mm-hmm. Then Amaro is like, "Oh, dang! That is new type stuff. Better stay away from that girl, Camille. This kid's in trouble. I can't tell you why, but you better stay away from her. <laughs> It'd be better for everybody." Yeah, both Amaro and Beltorchka are very quick to dismiss the possibility of this being new type stuff. Amaro also makes the distinction between people with great intuition and new types, and that a person could have great intuition without being a new type, and that people with that great intuition can have that instantaneous understanding of each other. I don't know that we've actually seen that play out in the show. I think when we've seen that, those people have also been new types. <laughs> But Amaro, in general, seems very resistant to attributing anything to new type ability. I think Mirai also. I love her description of Amaro and Lala's relationship, which incidentally she's willing to share with Camille and not with Beltorchka. Oh, I think she was willing to share it with Beltorchka, but Beltorchka freaked out and ran away when Mirai tried to start explaining it. But Mirai's explanation is something like two enemies who barely met, but who changed each other's lives forever. Well, and she says that Lala was able to completely pull Amro out of reality, even though she was dead. Which is true. We saw it. Yeah. Mirai poses this explanation almost as a question, like, "What if I told you that?" And Camille says, "Well, I would think it was impossible." And she's like, "Well, that's that's what Amro and Lala were to each other." <laughs> Hmm. They were enemies. They barely met. They completely changed each other's lives. When Mirai first describes the relationship between Lala and Amaro, Camille asks, "Were they lovers?" Because to him, for two people to have that much of an impact on each other, the only relationship he can imagine that being is one of lovers. And Mirai says, "Well, no. <laughs> <laughs> They had never met. Can you imagine that two people in that circumstance would be lovers?"、Mm. And that's when Camille says, "No, that's impossible." She says, "Well, these are the facts. This is what happened." Mirai also makes the point to Beltorchka, and this feels very much like part of Mirai's role as the adult in the room, the like sensible voice of wisdom throughout the episode, that Beltorchka's demands. To know about the most traumatic events in Amaro's life are careless. That it's, and this again might be poorly translated, but the sense of it to me was that you're not really considering what you're asking. You're not really thinking about what you're asking him to divulge to you, and you shouldn't be making these demands. <laughs> like it's unfair of you to demand this of him or of the people around him. Well, she's only thinking about the advantage to her of knowing this, and not the cost to Amaro of divulging it. But who among us, as a teenager or an early twenty-something, has not passionately desired to know everything about our loved one? Oh, absolutely! I remember feeling that way. 
Let me share all of my stuff with you. Now you share all of your stuff with me. I have to know, and you have to know. We have to understand each other 100% completely. If you have any secrets from me, that means you don't really care about me. And if there's anything about you I don't know, that's a secret. But Mirai, with the advantage of, what, like five or six years <laughs> of age, knows that that's not how this works. <laughs> Probably because Bright knows better than to ever ask about Slager. Everybody's happier if some secrets stay buried. I assume he knows, but why would you talk about it? He knows enough to know he doesn't want to know anymore. Well, and if they were not, okay, this is so <laughs> tangential. If they weren't officially together, if they weren't, like monogamously attached, which there's no indication that they were. Sure. Nothing is ever stated explicitly. Then like what business is it of his? <laughs> yeah. Well, in the same way that Lala is n no business of Beltorchka's. Oh, absolutely. But like he might want to know that bit of Mirai's past. He might. And the longer they're together, the more okay it is for him to ask. But also the less it matters. Right. Well, and I was going to say the more okay it is for him to ask as long as he's not demanding and he's okay with being told, no, I don't want to talk about that. <laughs> Which Beltorchka is clearly not okay with being told, no, I'm not going to talk about that. Though she gets that instruction again at the end of the episode and she kind of looks like she takes it a little bit better. But she also tells Mirai, I don't understand. When Mirai's like, take your time. Like the best way to get to know someone, the best way to get close to someone is to let it happen naturally and gradually over the time you spend together. And Beltorchka's like, I don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mirai is trying to explain adult relationships to Beltorchka. Beltorchka does not understand yet. Hopefully she will. She's on the cusp of those kinds of relationships, and she's trying to have one with Amuro, but she's still at heart more of a teenager, more in that early flush of romance period. You know, kind of like the romantic relationship that Camille is striking up with Four in the same episode. Yeah, now that we've talked about the early setup in the episode, we should talk some more about that, because I feel like the entirety of the relationship between the two of them is made up of strongly conflicting signals. <laughs> you know, he finds a way to meet up with her. They have this very touching reunion. They're hanging out on a rooftop in beautiful downtown Hong Kong with all the lights. When Four leans in close to him, he is clearly nervous. He leans away a little bit. His facial expression is like, oh no, what's happening? Well, she looks nervous too, the way her eyes are darting around. I, I felt more flirtation from the way that she was sort of like, like looking down into the side and then looking up at him and then away. Like there can be something very flirty in that. I got the flirtation. I also sensed some nervousness. Like she's clearly being very forward about this. Mm -hmm. She wants this and is going to take it. But at the same time, though, she doesn't seem any more experienced with this sort of thing than Camille is. So you describe her as being ready to take this, but she actually asks, she says, would you kiss me? By this, I meant the initiative, mm. not his first kiss. I don't know that it's his first kiss. He's, he mentioned having fallen for girls before. I bet he's kissed before. Eh, probably. But they kiss and it's fairly brief and he stands up and walks away immediately, <laughs> which I thought was a little odd. <laughs> He's just feeling a lot of feelings right now. And you say it was fairly brief. I would describe this as a two-stage kiss because there's the initial kissing and then there's like, he puts a hand on her shoulder and sort of holds her. There's an extension of the kiss into a second act. Okay. So it's not like- I just mean they're not making out, yeah. basically. They're, they kiss, they don't start making out. 
And then he like all of a sudden gets up and walks away. I just mean it's not like a kiss and ooh, I didn't like that immediate repulsion thing. No, he doesn't seem repulsed, but I'm not sure what we're supposed to take from that. Is he nervous? Does he think this is a bad idea after all? I think that he is desperate for any kind of connection and also deeply fearful of it. Anybody please, but also don't. He's scared of intimacy. He's scared of being vulnerable. He looks so uncomfortable when Four sort of invades his personal space Mm -hmm. initially. And then after they kiss, the first thing he does is to create space again. Mm -hmm. He also effectively asks her to desert and join him aboard the Adumla. Makes some promises he definitely shouldn't make where he's like, oh, I'm sure Ayug has technology that can bring your memory back. I mean... Who knows if the lab even has that technology? I was going to say, I highly doubt that the problem with her memory is that somehow the lab took it away and they can give it back. Right. They're not keeping it in a jeweled box somewhere to present to her when she succeeds in this mission. The only possibility I see here where this makes sense, as opposed to being pure lies, (laughs) uh, is if they know that therapy could help her bring her memory back. It's not at all uncommon for people who've been through traumatic situations to lose a big chunk of memory around that traumatic time as a self-preservation mechanism. And we know she's a war orphan. It would not be surprising for her to forget a big chunk of her childhood. Not surprising at all. But I'm 100% on this is a pack of lies. Mm-hmm. It's a way to control her. Yeah, it's a way to control her. Who knows if they took her memory away or she just didn't have any memory because of the trauma or what exactly the situation there is. But this is a thing that they can use to motivate her. And I'm not entirely certain that it's limited to motivation in the traditional sense. Mm. Her responses when Camille starts to get close to her, to get close to convincing her to abandon the Psycho Gundam and the Titans and all all of that are a little erratic and irrational. There's a feeling to them almost like she's been conditioned so that the closer Camille gets to breaking through the conditioning, the more violent her reactions against it are. And then Amaro has a line when they're fighting with the Psycho Gundam. I was going to say, I think it's very significant that most of those moments that she has and the violence of that emotion is while she's sitting in the Psycho Gundam. She doesn't get out. She is sitting in the chair in that cockpit the whole time. The cockpit in the head of the Psycho Gundam. And you were saying Amaro has that line. He calls it the combat system and says it's forcing the pilot to fight. Right. But it isn't just a matter of her controlling the machine. The machine also controls her in some way. And in classic Amaro fashion, he's like, I'm going to use my new type ability and find where that system is and destroy it. Like I can pinpoint the thing and destroy it, but he can't. He can't find it. Yeah. And the fact that he can't find it leaves us wondering, is it really there, right? Is this wishful thinking from Amaro that there is such a system in the Psycho Gundam, it is controlling the pilot and he can destroy it? Or is it really there and he just can't find it? I think it's really there and he just can't find it because there's something deeply ominous about the idea that the latest sort of perversion of this human ability is using it not just to control weapons of war, but for a weapon of war to control a person. (laughs) In a sense, it's controlling a weapon of war. It's just that the weapon of war is for. Right. Uh, that That is so dark and unsettling. It feels like it has to be part of the show. <laughs> and when I talked about brain-computer interfaces a few episodes back, I did mention that one of the ethical concerns is if the brain can control a computer, it's possible for the computer also to feed information or commands back into the brain, which 
In the real world, people have theorized as a way to help augment memory. It could also be used to modify or... Implant or... Remove memories. Most of the characterization of War in this episode focuses on her conception of self, right? She has so many lines about, I don't know who I am, I'm lonely, and it's lonelier when I don't have memories to look back on. What's the point of new memories if I don't have old ones? What, what is the good of anything that exists or is alive <laughs> if I don't know who I am or have memory to depend on? She is very caught up in this idea that because she doesn't remember all of her past, she can't be like a fully realized person. She can't know who she is without having that information. And maybe that's part of her conditioning. As you said, that might be an idea that's very much been cultivated in her. You're not a full person because you don't remember. Mm -hmm. Her search for identity, her desperate desire to understand who she is in the world, also comes out sometimes when she's not talking directly about her memories. She has that scene with Camille on the rooftop when she asks him, hey, how does it feel to pilot a mobile suit? Like, mm -hmm. How does it feel for you? Mm -hmm. And as we've talked about before, mobile suits are usually stand-ins for the character's bodies. Mm -hmm. So she's asking, like, how does it feel to be you? How does it feel to be? Right. And, of course, she pilots a mobile suit, too. She has her own experience of this, but she's curious about Camille's, which that's also, I think, a huge part of romantic relationships when you're in your teens is that curiosity about other people and trying to know, hey, what is it like to be someone who's not me? What is it like to be a different person? And they share a bit of a bonding moment over that because both of them are basically forced to use their idealized mecha bodies just to fight. Alternatively, the point they're making there when Camille says, well, it's only ever in combat, so is that perhaps neither of them feels completely alive except when they're fighting? Mm. So I'm curious which of these two things you think is more authentic and real. Camille has two moments dealing with people outside of the him and four relationship, but in relation to it. With Amuro, he says, well, if you won't tell me about new type stuff, I have to find out on my own. So he almost cast this as like, I'm just trying to learn about new type <laughs> things. That's why I'm spending time with this woman and running off and woman, girl, I, whatever. She's 18. <laughs> She's a woman, girl. Yeah. Um... Which to me feels like a justification, though that curiosity may certainly be part of it. But at that point, he and Four don't actually know that they are the pilots that they got those intense feelings from. They're starting to wonder, but they don't know until later in the fight. When Camille finally gets back to the Audumla so that he can join the fight, get in the Mark II and so on, he gets in trouble for being away without leave. And what he thinks to himself when he gets in the cockpit is basically along the lines of, like, a man can't just fight because he's worried about getting slapped around. You know, men cannot live on bread alone. <laughs> uh, implying that he needs some kind of a life outside of life on the ship, outside of his life as a pilot of the Mark II, mm -hmm. to give it all meaning, to make it all worthwhile. And that part of that is this relationship that he's developing with Four. So do you think both of these presented reasons are legit? Do you think one's a smokescreen? Well, Camille's struggling with motivation in this episode. During his conversation with Four, they have a brief little chat talking about the themes of Zeta Gundam, where they say, well, it seems like we're enemies, but only because of some lines drawn by adults. 
And then four has a comment about how there's no difference between Ayug and the Titans, just different uniforms. And then Camille says a line which I feel like is going to come back to haunt him, where he's like, no, there is a difference. Ayug would never do this when they see the Sudori start bombing Hong Kong. So for Camille, there is a difference. But it's not in the big picture ideals of Ayug and Karaba, the kind of things that Stephanie has been talking to Hayato about. From his perspective, it really is just two different sides wearing different uniforms. And the really important differences are in the people and the methods. Mm-hmm. Right. The Titans will take a mom hostage to try and control her son. They'll carpet bomb a city for being excessively neutral. And they'll take a war orphan, carve out her memories, and make her into a psychic war Super machine. Soldier. When Stephanie slaps Camille when he gets back to the Aldumla, what she says is, aren't you taking the battles of Ayuk and Karaba seriously? She's asking, aren't you sufficiently motivated by Ayuk's big ideals? And no, Camille is not, nor is he sufficiently motivated by all of these slaps and uh, other assorted beatings he's been getting. And I think that's what his line about a man can't go out and fight just because he's been slapped Mm -hmm. is like, you actually need a motivation that is meaningful to you. Mere discipline is not sufficient. Interestingly, one of Four's handlers seems to understand that. (laughs) The sergeant? Yeah, when he comes to retrieve her and then Camille shows up and she's like, actually, I'm not going back yet. And it's clear she's going to go hang out with this teenage boy. He whistles a little bit. He does. He he whistles like, oh, you've got a date. (laughs) But he understands. When she says, I need some time, he says, okay, you have to wear this tracker, but okay. Which is, feels like a lot more understanding than Camille necessarily gets from anybody <laughs> yeah. that he interacts with. There's even a moment at the very end of this episode between Wooder and Namikar where they're discussing four. And while they ultimately do decide that they need to use her, even though she may not be up to it, the tenor of the conversation makes it clear that they are not unconcerned about four's welfare. They just are willing to sacrifice it for the sake of their mission. And I find their concern for her welfare deeply suspect. I think Wooder has shown time and again that he is kind of distrustful of all this new type stuff anyway. He thinks it's a bit of a boondoggle and they're putting too much time and energy and dependence into it. And I think Namikar is seeing dollar signs of like how many millions of dollars did it cost to rear for and train her into this position. And if she doesn't prove herself useful, then what? And what about Namikar's job? (laughs) She's the lead (laughs) trainer at this facility. If Four doesn't prove herself, probably Namikar is out of a job. Yeah, sure. I just think they they both have very personal interests in Four that have very little to do with prioritizing Four's welfare. I don't disagree with you. I would just say that I think most of the people in Ayug who have expressed concern over Camille have similar motivations for doing so. I think part of the reason Camille bonded so hard and so fast with Mirai and her children is because they're some of the few people he's actually encountered who don't have ulterior motives for looking after him. Mirai's awesome. Love her. She does something at the end of the episode that is so great and subtle. 
she starts to reach to put a hand on Beltorchka's shoulder. Beltorchka like gives her a look. She doesn't say anything. She doesn't pull away. She just like gives the hand a look. And Mirai doesn't touch Beltorchka. I thought she actually was like pulling a stray hair off of her or something. Like I thought it looked a little bit like, oh, you got a hair there. I'm going to. I think that was the cover. She was like okay. going for the reach, realized it wasn't welcome. And then she's like, I'm just. <laughs> Which makes Mirai perhaps the only person in Zeta so far to not touch people without permission. And she also asks about Camille and reminds Amro he needs to look after Camille. And it's like, oh, I wish we could have said goodbye to him. Like, she also seems to recognize more than anyone else that Camille's a little different, right? She says so to Stephanie. She's like, that boy's a little different, isn't he? And Stephanie's like, is he? I don't know. Like, <laughs> He's just as easy to slap as all the other people I've encountered. I was curious. They explicitly describe Hong Kong City as least territory in this episode. Least from who? Right. <laughs> like, is who? Ex- what governments exist that aren't the Federation? This raises a really big question in the Gundam universe. What is the extent of the Federation? Is the Federation just the Anglosphere? Is it like Global West? We know it's at least part of South America, mm-hmm. North America, mm-hmm. Europe. Mm-hmm. Japan question mark? We don't know about Africa, but I suppose they haven't really said anything about China Mm -hmm. or South Asia or Southeast Asia. Well, Southeast Asia, they mentioned New Guinea, but the base in New Guinea is new. But presumably they wouldn't have put a base there unless it was Federation territory. Mm -hmm. So the former Soviet Union and China, big question marks. Mm -hmm. The other thing I noticed in this episode is some very striking visuals that tie to Four's emotional state. The first one, when she and Camille are reunited and we get the like sick 80s guitar riffs and the background goes completely white and it goes slow motion and kind of soft and hazy and she runs up and hugs him and he spins her around. (laughs) It feels very romantic. The next one I noticed... When the bombing of Hong Kong starts and she takes off running, Camille chases after her. And at one point, he actually catches up to her and grabs hold of her shoulder. And we see her and we see his hand on her shoulder, but the image we see of him is reflected in a window. We're that not, was such a good visual. That right? was amazing. We're not, we're not looking at him. We're looking at a reflection of him interacting with Four. Well, and what does she say there? Do you remember? No. What? That's where she asks, do you know who I am? Can you tell me? She's not asking Camille, the person, that. She's asking it to the ether. She's asking it to this, like, blank image of any person. Or she's asking it to the memory of him that she now possesses. She has so few of them, and they keep her company in her loneliness. And then, after the Saigundam gets knocked into the water by Amaro, she and Camille have a conversation. He continues to try to get her to come to Ayug instead. She continues with, I have been assured that I will be given my memories back if I defeat the Mark II. I'm sorry, but we're enemies now. Like, you need to leave. After she closes her cockpit back up again, we see the water rising behind her. Very similar to the image of Amuro with the water rising over his face after he killed Lala or when he thinks about Lala. That image of waves engulfing you. 
She is so torn. She's been working towards getting her memories back from the beginning. She was finally going to be given an opportunity to fight and to prove herself so that she could get her memories back. She's so close to this thing that she's wanted for years, probably for most of her life. But on the other hand, she finally has this connection. She finally has breached that loneliness and has met someone that she feels for and who seems to kind of understand her. And, and he is the pilot of the machine she's supposed to destroy. It's very Romeo and Juliet. So I want to add three additional visuals oh, for four that I okay. thought were really cool in this episode. I'll do the last one first because it connects to what you were just saying about the water engulfing her. Mm -hmm. At the end of the episode, when the Sudori has retrieved the Psycho Gundam, Four is still in the cockpit. Mm -hmm. She hasn't left, but we see water like cascading off of the Psycho Gundam because mm -hmm. it's just been retrieved from the water. But it looks almost like the water is pouring out of the cockpit. Yeah, it looks like it's coming out of the vents. And it kind of looks like the Psycho Gundam is bleeding the water. And then inside the cockpit, Four is sitting in the chair, but really she's lying across the chair. One of her arms is dangling down at her side. Her hair is askew, and she's staring up at the ceiling of the cockpit, her, up at heaven. Her head has sort of fallen back. She is slumped over to one side. And when I saw this, I immediately felt like this had to be a reference to something out of classical art. It looked too much like a classic pose. I looked at a couple of paintings. I couldn't quite figure it out. I asked Nina. She looked at the image and she immediately said, oh, that's a Pieta. Which for those of you who aren't familiar, Pietas are images of Christ after he's been brought down off of the cross. So he's dead uh, and he's often being held in Mary's arms and he is slumped over, head tilted back, facing toward the sky, uh, cradled in his mother's arms. Well, and one arm hanging. The pose is too exact to be a coincidence. We'll do a side by side so you can see it. Although in this case, Mary cradling him is actually the chair of the Psycho Gundam. That's not messed up at all, that this horrifying machine is effectively her mother. Get in your mom, robot. Get in your mom, robot, sacrificial girl. We're both making deeply uncomfortable faces. She's here to save all the people on Earth. Only Earth. From the wrath of the sky dwellers. I think you're taking it too far. <laughs> and then the first image that really stuck out in my mind for four is when she shows up at the beginning of the episode and she's walking through the streets of Hong Kong, literally through the streets. Uh, a Veyan has to swerve around her, nearly missing her. And she doesn't react at she's all. She's completely oblivious to what's going on around her. She's in the city center. It's a part of Hong Kong we haven't seen quite like this before. It looks very different from the neighborhood where Luo and company was. Oh, I noticed this too. Go on. But I, I think I know what you're going to say. And It looks very much like Side Six did in First Gundam. Oh, I was going to say, I mean, you're absolutely right. It looks very much like Side Six. But as she's staring into the crowd, we get a series of painted stills. The style changes, and it's not animated. They're vignettes. It feels very unreal within the world of the story. And it's, you know, a family out shopping together and a couple on a date and some young friends hanging out. And it feels almost like she's taking snapshots. It feels almost like she's looking into the crowd and thinking, these are memories I'm supposed to have. I'm supposed to remember the time I was out shopping with my family or out with my friends or like in the way that people sometimes describe remembering something as looking at a picture. 
There's also a woman in the crowd who looks almost suspiciously like a young Lala. I don't know if that was intentional or if I'm just looking for Lala everywhere <laughs> in this episode, but she's there. And then during the fight, it's not even really a fight at that point because she's in the Psycho Gundam and she's just wrecking Hong Kong. When she sees the rooftop mm -hmm. where she and Camille canoodled <laughs> and she's pouring tears. Yes. And she sees it and she just, she has to destroy it. I'm not sure what they did rose to a level of canoodling, but yeah, she she's really torn between this idea of building a self out of new memories versus working to retrieve her old ones. And the way she acts is almost like she thinks it's disloyal to her old memories or disloyal to the self that she thinks exists there to like create new memories that are happy and good. Whereas I really think Camille's coming at this from a position of, I would love to forget my memories. I would love to start anew. Or he simply you can't wrap his head around why somebody wouldn't. Like, like, why would you let the man oppress you with the promise of having your old memories back when you can go make new ones and not be controlled by them? I know I said I had three really cool visuals to highlight for four. I actually have four for four. Oh. Yeah. And the fourth one is right when Amuro shoots the Psycho Gundam, four gets knocked around inside the cockpit. Yeah, she gets knocked into the front control panel. It hits her right in the stomach. But she actually hits her head against the panoramic monitors. But because it's a panoramic monitor, it's functionally invisible for us. We see her get thrown forward and we can actually see her like crack her head mm -hmm. on an invisible wall. We get this sense of four as being trapped within this invisible cage. And Amuro trying to destroy the combat system mm -hmm. is enough to like jar her within it, but not enough to break her out. And it raises the question if she could even survive being broken out of it. Well, what it made me wonder, the way you phrased it just now, when Amuro starts trying to pinpoint it and, and shoot the control system, she immediately does that mega particle burst that the Psycho Gundam does off of its chest almost like the Psycho Gundam is defending itself. That's the question, right? Is she, did she control it or did it wake her up and go, hey, hey girl, defend us. Wakey, wakey. When Camille is trying to convince her at the very end there, after he's gotten her to open up the cockpit, which is the in the Psycho Gundam's mouth, is the hatch to the cockpit, she says, Camille, you know everything about me. And he literally does. Pretty much. Which is what Beltorchka was trying to achieve at the beginning of the episode. She wanted to know everything about Amaro. But that level of complete understanding of the other person doesn't enable Camille or Four to overcome this difficulty between the two of them. It doesn't help them or make them happy or allow their love to blossom and thrive. Even complete understanding of another person isn't enough. I thought they were going to do more with time in this episode because they make such a show of Beltorchka checking her watch when Hayato says, okay, we have to be out of here by midnight. We have to be out of here today, but midnight's still today and it's almost precisely 7 p.m. And so I thought they were going to do more with that approach to midnight than they really did. I think the midnight thing is just in there to reinforce the overall framing device of the Cinderella story. 
And when we say Cinderella story in English, often what we take that to mean is actually the sort of happy ending part of it. It's a rags to riches story where a person who's in a terrible situation gets some outside, maybe divine, maybe magical help, and they are able to overcome their terrible situation and you know find love and uh, find happiness. But most of the Cinderella story is actually the first part of that, where you have a person in a really terrible situation who, thanks to a little bit of divine assistance, is able to briefly get a respite from it that ends at midnight. And that's Four's situation. She has a brief respite from her terrible situation, and then at midnight is transformed back into the war machine. I have to add one thing about the fight. Do it. Camille refuses to fight for. Throughout the whole fight, he's backing away. He's trying to get her to stop attacking Hong Kong, but he won't attack her. He keeps telling her, you can't fight. You mustn't fight. And then telling Amuro, no, don't attack her. And Amuro is like, what are you doing? You're going to get killed. So four might be Camille's Lala, but he's better than Amuro. He's not going to kill her. Counterpoint, maybe that's just because he doesn't have a rival. Jared is right there. Your disrespect for Jared is... I meant a rival for four. Ah, maybe. Amaro's also the one who demonstrated that to him. Like, oh, look, chopping off the backpack instead of exploding the whole mobile suit. Yeah, Amaro has learned from his mistakes. I just don't feel like it's fair <laughs> to compare this situation to the Amaro Shar Lala fight where there is someone trying to kill Amaro. <laughs> like, she's not, she's not super trying to kill Camille here. And there's no third person who Camille is trying to fight and she's trying to defend. You know, Amaro had this horrible confluence of he had the perfect beat on Char. He committed to it 100%. Lala reacted so quickly that he couldn't stop and she saved Char's butt. Like Lala threw herself in front of the sword as much as Amaro made the strike. Oh, yeah. I'm not saying that what Amaro did was... But you did say you thought it made Camille better than Amaro. Yeah. I I think Amaro has learned from his mistakes, and I think Camille has learned from Amaro's mistakes. I think Camille is trying not to make the same mistakes. Maybe it's wrong to say that that makes him better, but it's different. I think it's a very apples and oranges kind of situation. I don't really see that these two fights are so closely connected that we can say that about them, but you're entitled to your opinion. (laughs) Our research for this week focuses on attachment theory. The time has finally come. (laughs) The past few episodes have been very focused on relationships and attachment. Who feels it? For whom? How do they express it? So I am finally going to dig into attachment theory. Attachment theory is a model for looking at a specific facet of interpersonal relationships. Our responses to stressors like fear, loneliness, and pain, and was developed by John Balby. I don't know if I'm pronouncing his last name right. A baby naturally forms an attachment to their caregiver, or caregivers, it doesn't have to be a single person, and seeks comfort from them when they are distressed. When their need for proximity, emotional support, and protection is fulfilled, then their caregiver becomes a sort of safe base from which to explore the world and take risks, because there's always somewhere safe to go back to. Kind of like the white base or the adumna. Babies start to exhibit attachment behaviors, which is to say behaviors whose goal is proximity to or care from the caregiver as early as two months. 
These include things that we think of as normal baby behavior, smiling, babbling, crying, because all of these tend to get adults around the baby to react and interact with the baby. At the youngest ages, these are directed at anybody nearby. As a baby is older, they begin to discriminate between people they know mm -hmm. and strangers, and their behavior becomes more goal-oriented. The behavior is aimed at creating the conditions that make them feel secure. They greet their caregiver. They protest when the caregiver leaves them. They try to follow the caregiver if they can. They cling. There's no such thing as a perfect caregiver. Sometimes signals get crossed or timing is off. Even a very attuned caregiver is going to get it wrong a lot of the time. But good caregivers tend to ameliorate those moments by, you know, being attuned and present the rest of the time in a way that makes up for those moments of miscommunication. Studies across cultures demonstrate that certain aspects of attachment theory are universal, regardless of differences in culture. Secure attachment is the most common and best state. Caregiver sensitivity influences attachment patterns. And specific infant attachment styles are predictive of later social and cognitive skills. The most common way to test and classify attachment in infants, and the one most supported by empirical evidence, is called the Strange Situation Protocol, and was developed by a developmental psychologist, Mary Ainsworth, in 1965, and she had been a student of Balbi's. The purpose is to gauge the infant's reaction to stressors. Each stage of the process lasts three minutes. First, the caregiver and infant are brought into a playroom with plenty of toys and a one-way mirrored window that allows the researchers to observe unnoticed. Caregiver and baby spend time in the unfamiliar room alone, with the infant set down among the toys and the caregiver not participating. A stranger enters the room, converses with the caregiver, and then approaches the infant. The caregiver leaves conspicuously. The stranger gears their behavior toward the infant. Then the caregiver returns greets and comforts the infant, but then leaves again. The stranger also leaves, so now the infant is alone. Then the stranger returns and gears their behavior toward the infant. Then the caregiver returns and the stranger leaves conspicuously. The observers are mostly looking at the infant's behavior when they're reunited with their caregiver. But other behaviors that are also taken into account are the amount of exploration that the baby does, playing with new toys, moving around the room, uh, their reaction to the caregiver leaving, and their level of what I hear friends with babies call stranger danger, the anxiety babies feel around an unknown person. Based on these observations, they developed a set of classifications. These have been further refined with subtypes and different type descriptions for children of different ages, but I'm gonna to stick to the main attachment styles identified as based on infant behavior. And there are four. Secure attachment. The child feels they can rely on their caregiver to perceive and fulfill their needs. They feel safe and confident in the caregiver's presence. This doesn't mean they never get upset. Securely attached infants did show distress when their caregiver left the room, but then they were happy and soothed when they were reunited. Second type, anxious ambivalent. This is a reaction to unpredictable caregiving. Sometimes needs are met, sometimes they're not. These infants experience separation anxiety, but they're not comforted when the caregiver comes back. This has actually been verified with measurements of infant heart rate. Their heart rate elevates when they become stressed, but does not go back down when the caregiver returns. They often exhibit anger or helplessness. 
These are two different types, resistant and passive type. And they're both attempts to attract and keep caregiver attention and to sort of take control of the situation. Angry and resistant behavior can also be interpreted as a way of punishing the caretaker for leaving. Ainsworth describes resistant types as exhibiting a mixture of seeking and yet resisting contact, and that their interaction has an unmistakably angry quality. Oh, hi, Camille. (laughs) Later research found that children who had experienced abuse were more likely to exhibit ambivalent attachment. Oh, hi, Camille. The third type is anxious avoidant or dismissive avoidant attachment. It's a reaction to unresponsive caregiving. An infant is communicating their needs, but that communication doesn't seem to influence the caregiver. Their attachment behaviors seem to be rebuffed. In this case, infants avoid or ignore their caregiver, not showing much of a reaction to them leaving or returning. This can be everything from actively looking at and then turning away from the caregiver, physically moving away from the caregiver, or approaching and then retreating. Oh, hi, Amaro. The theory is that this is a mask for distress. One of Ainsworth's students, Mary Main, hypothesized that these infants downplay their attachment needs to avoid feeling rejected by their caregiver. It allows them to be close enough to the caregiver to feel protected, but distant enough not to feel rejection. And to some degree, engaging in avoidant behavior is a distraction from their unfulfilled emotional needs. The fourth type is disorganized attachment. This was actually not added until 1983 by Mary Main, and as I mentioned before, she was a student-turned-colleague of Ainsworth's. Infants in this category don't really exhibit a lot of attachment behavior. They exhibit behavior and emotional reactions that appear out of step with what's happening. Their behavior does not really seem focused on achieving proximity to their caretaker. This is usually attributed to a powerful feeling like fear overwhelming the whole system. These infants exhibited a lot of tense body positions, shoulders hunched, head cocked to one side, that seemed to be an attempt to not cry. Uh, They tended to happen right before crying and then stop once the crying started. Other behaviors that may signal this attachment type are freezing up, apparent dissociation, which I can't even imagine what a dissociating baby looks like, but I imagine it's unsettling, uh, and simultaneous approach and avoidance. There's been some criticism that this category is overbroad and has become something of a catch-all for any behavior that didn't fit in the other three types, but there have been efforts to clarify that with the addition of subtypes and further explanation. It was also found in separate studies that most infants with disorganized attachment had mothers who had suffered a major loss or trauma shortly before or after the infant's birth and who had subsequently become severely depressed. So a severely depressed caretaker This typical system of sort of signals and reciprocity gets broken down because of the depression. The attachment model manifests differently as we age, mature, and gain independence. This is not all set in stone. Your attachment style as an infant is not necessarily your attachment style as you get older. But there is a lot of carryover. (laughs) And I'm going to jump forward somewhat past childhood and straight to adolescence and adulthood. This gave me some pause because, well, many of our characters are quite young. Camille is still in his teens, and it's not as if he was living independently before he ran away to join Ayug. Four's age is uncertain, but I doubt that she's much older. Does it make more sense to look at attachment in adolescence or adults? I'm going to do a bit of both because it turns out that there's a lot of overlap between the way they classify attachment in teens and in adults. 
It really wasn't until the 80s that therapists and researchers began to consider how early attachment styles might affect adult relationships. While the kind of attachment behaviors and expectations of the relationships are different, adults also want to feel close to others, and secure attachments provide a feeling of comfort and safety to face what one source called the surprises, opportunities, and challenges that life presents. The attachment styles in adults and adolescents are secure attachment. Hello again, old friend. Adolescents and adults with secure attachment have generally positive views of themselves and others. They find it easy to become emotionally close to others and are comfortable with both intimacy and independence. They are comfortable depending on others and being depended upon. Who are these strange alien creatures you're <laughs> describing? They don't worry much about being alone or about not being accepted by others. In teens, this also manifests as an ability to process and deal with both positive and negative emotions associated with past experiences. <laughs> I'm trying to think of a single Gundam character. We then have the three types of insecure attachment. First, we have anxious preoccupied. People with anxious preoccupied insecure attachment have a negative view of themselves, but a positive view of others. They want to be deeply intimate with others, but find that others seem reluctant to be as close as they would like. And they spend a lot of time thinking about their relationships. They're uncomfortable without close relationships, but often feel like they are more attached to others than others are to them. They want a lot of intimacy, approval, and responsiveness in their relationships and can sometimes be overly dependent. They need to feel wanted and they need a lot of reassurance. Their negative view of themselves stems from blaming themselves for the unresponsiveness of an attachment figure. Preoccupied adolescents direct attention away from the people or events responsible for their emotional reactions and have a lot of difficulty articulating their emotions. We then have the dismissive avoidant type. People with dismissive avoidant attachment have a positive view of themselves and a negative view of others. They're comfortable without close relationships and it's important to them to feel independent and self-sufficient. They prefer not to depend on others or to have others depend on them. They tend to hide or suppress their own feelings and distance themselves from sources of rejection. In teens, this manifests very similarly. They downplay or even outright disparage the importance of attachments and avoid thinking about or dealing with their own feelings or emotional needs. They tend to appear very, like, functional and well-adjusted from the outside, but they also tend to invite a very negative view from their peers because they're not interested in forming or keeping relationships. And finally, we have the fearful avoidant type. People with this attachment style have an unstable, fluctuating, or confused view of themselves and others. It's sometimes associated with past traumatic experience. They want emotionally close relationships, but are uncomfortable getting close to others and have difficulty trusting or depending on anyone. Oh, hey, Beltorska. They worry they will be hurt if they become close to others. They may feel unworthy of responsiveness from their attachments, and they frequently suppress and deny their wants and feelings. In teens, this manifests as difficulty with regulating their emotions, and the undealt with trauma puts them at risk for other mental health issues. I think that's more for. It can be both. Attachment theory is just that, a theory. And plenty of psychologists and psychiatrists disagree with it. It's also invited its share of controversies, including a sense that it was anti-feminist, which, to be fair, some writers equated putting a child in daycare to child abuse. It seemed like a covert way to guilt and shame mothers who work by saying that their absence would cause permanent mental and emotional harm to their children. 
as I mentioned earlier, the caregiver doesn't have to be the mother. It can be any consistent and responsive person, related or not. It's also been seen as a way to place the blame for maladjusted children, adolescents, and adults on one person, mom, rather than deal with the complex societal factors, not to mention environment and temperament, that contribute to how someone turns out as an adult. I mean, that also sounds like all of the autism theory from that era as well, refrigerator mother and those ideas. It's so much more comfortable to blame a person than the entirety of our society and the way it's structured. Or invisible forces that we don't understand. You said that the attachment figure can be any consistently present person. Mm -hmm. Could it be like a person-shaped robot that you can climb inside? So no, unless the robot is reacting to your like cues regarding your emotional needs. Like I've... if it had some kind of brain-computer interface, some sort of like psychic communicator that could talk to your brain. So I see what you're getting at, but I definitely don't understand enough about attachment theory to speculate as to whether a sufficiently advanced computer could satisfy someone's attachment needs. Psychologists listening to this episode do some studies. Like most theories of its kind, attachment theory has been grossly oversimplified and taken out of context on many occasions. I'm not trying to make any grand claims about attachment theory, but it does seem like a useful framework for analyzing how some of the characters in Gundam handle their relationships. I thought we would focus on two of our most obvious cases, but feel free to bring up anybody you like. I was going to open with Beltorchka and Camille. Okay. With Beltorchka, we know that she's an orphan from the One Year War, and so she probably spent some time in an orphanage, in foster care, homeless, or some combination of those. When I was looking for information about attachment and institutionalized children, one of the biggest sources of data has been children in Romanian orphanages when the Soviet Union broke up in the late 80s. They found significant attachment issues for many of these children who were receiving very little direct human contact throughout their day. There was maybe one caretaker for every 10 children. You know, these were babies who were being held for maybe 10 minutes a day. However, most of the studies of these children are looking at the effects of institutionalization on babies, on very young children. And some quick calculation tells us that if Beltorchka is 20 and the war was seven years ago, at the outside, she was 12, which obviously traumatic experience, the war, the loss of her parents, but not disruptive in the same way as institutionalization as an infant would have been. Different effects on her and the way that she deals with relationships. So what I find myself wondering is, are we meant to associate her behavior, which I thought seemed very consistent with the anxious preoccupied type, that like demand for intimacy from other people, are we meant to associate that with her past trauma? Or is this just a type of person that the writers knew and were familiar with and thought would be a good inclusion in the story. Hmm. Well, there's really no reason it can't be both. Sure. Presumably they were familiar with people like Beltorchka because those people had endured the kind of trauma that she endured. I think there's a little bit more to her than just that demand for immediate intimacy, because there's also that distrust, that fear that Amuro is going to go and get himself killed and she's going to be all alone again. 
And I think a lot of her desire to know everything about him connected to her distrust for everybody else who gets close to him maybe puts her in that fearful avoidant category. Yeah, I will say from the outside, she doesn't seem to have a negative view of herself, which is one of the hallmarks of the uh, anxious preoccupied type. I would say that her view of others does seem largely unstable, fluctuating, or confused. <laughs> Even Amaro, as much as she's very much sweet on him now, her, her feelings towards him do seem to fluctuate a lot. You know, sometimes she is all about Amaro, and sometimes she can't stand him and is very frustrated by him. And some of that's Amaro's behavior, but some of that's her. And as we've noted, she vacillates between, I want you to be brave. No, I want you to be safe. No. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard some fans describe Beltorchka as a kind of unfortunate and gross stereotype of a certain sort of woman. And I do think there's some of that to her, but there's actually a lot more complexity to the psychology of her character than just that stereotype. As we've noted before, Tomino's attitude toward writing women characters, I think, helps alleviate some of that. Because if she were one of the only women in the story we would feel that more. Like, ew, this is kind of an icky stereotype of the controlling, jealous girlfriend. But because there are so many other different women in the show, somehow she feels like less of a stereotype and more of an individual. Yeah, I feel that. Especially since she's being so directly contrasted with Mirai and Four and Stephanie and Namikar in these couple of episodes, all of whom are very different and most of whom are messed up in very different ways. Mm-hmm. Now, as for Camille, when we were reading through the infant attachment types, we got a very strong anxious ambivalent vibe, uh, specifically the resistant type. <laughs> Somebody please, but no! <laughs> <laughs> and also that all of his interactions with everyone are characterized by anger. Mixture of seeking and resisting contact. I came to visit with you, but now I'm going to run away. Angrily, in a huff. But which of the adolescent or adult types do you think he fits into? This one is difficult. I think he might also be fearful avoidant to some degree because I, he, he shows a clear desire for connection. So he's definitely not dismissive avoidant, right? Hmm. You th you're not sure about that? <laughs> I'm not sure about that. I think Camille does a lot to make himself look and feel as though he doesn't need any connections. And that is the attachment type characterized by a positive view of self and negative view of others, which is definitely Camille. <laughs> I think he was more engaged in connection-seeking behavior up until episode nine when he gets beaten up by Wong Li. And after that, there's a kind of switch to an independent mindset and a, I don't need anybody, I'm going to do what is necessary to avoid trouble, and I'm going to be like, complete unto myself. I also think that since then, he has started hiding his emotions more. He was much more outspoken and upfront about his feelings prior to that incident, when basically everybody told him, like, you need to shut your mouth. Or this and worse will happen to you again. But the relationship with Four, do you think he's... I suppose the question is, does he want to be close to Four? Or is she just a cute girl he wants to spend <laughs> some time with? I think he's at war with himself on this. <laughs> and you see this in this episode. You know, he runs away from the Adumla to go see her. Clearly wants to see her again, to find out more about her, to develop that connection that they're both feeling. But then when they're actually together, mm -hmm. especially on the rooftop when she goes to kiss him, he's so uncomfortable in that situation and he creates that distance from her. 
During the talkback, I think I said that that was because he was afraid of intimacy. Mm -hmm. I think he's afraid of being rejected again. It's a defensive reaction, right? If you hold people at a distance and you avoid intimacy, there's less likelihood of somebody who matters a lot to you and has a lot of access to you uh, hurting you in some way. Hey, that's what she does later in the episode. You're not more important than my past, kid. Now I'm going to physically and emotionally hurt you. I mean, he could just abandon his robo-brother. I mean, the Mark II. <laughs> abandon his attachment figure? How cruel. Uh, one thing that came up. So first, uh, secure attachment is by far the most common kind of attachment. Like Not in Gundam, it ain't. Well, no, but in, in the population, just so people don't start freaking out. Like 60% of the population has secure attachment most of the time. And then it's a pretty even split between anxious, preoccupied, and dismissive avoidant. The fearful avoidant is rarer because it's the most extreme in some ways. You know, most adults are interested in learning about attachment styles because they're having relationship difficulties and it's affecting their most important relationships, close friendships, romantic relationships. And there's some indication that people seek out partners who reaffirm their own ideas about how attachments work. Mm. So someone who doesn't feel worthy of reciprocity is going to seek out somebody who withholds that reciprocity. Hmm. See, Beltorchka and Amaro, I guess. Hmm. <laughs> and Camille may almost be drawn to four because she's erratic, because her her view of the world is sort of all over the place and she has difficulty regulating her feelings and like her feelings are all out there, whereas his are carefully locked away, never to be looked at again. <laughs> I mean, she confirms for him in a lot of ways, like, oh yeah, if I get close to anyone, horrible things will happen. She confirms his worldview. And there's something attractive about that. There's something attractive about being right, even when you're right about something awful. Even when it hurts you. Did you want to look at anybody else? You mentioned Amuro earlier. I was more thinking about first Gundam Amuro and his relationships with his parents and how both with his literal parents, he has that like avoidant behavior of even looking at them, recognizing them, and then physically and philosophically going in the complete opposite direction. Mm -hmm. But also that he kind of does that to Frabo, especially in the first half of the show. When she's acting as his emotional surrogate mother, he also ignores her and turns away from her. And then their relationship improves a lot after the first half of the show is over when she stops being his mother. Are you sure you're not talking about Camille and Fa? I don't know if they've gotten to that point yet. No, but I... It's very interesting to me that, you know, Camille and Fa's big fight can basically boil down to Porcupine's dilemma, right? Like, being close to you hurts. Like, I am close to you. We have this friendship going way back. But right now, being close to you just hurts for both of them. Yeah. And both of them are saying, I like you and I don't want to hurt you. So maybe don't get so close to me. But then that also hurts. It'll be very interesting to see how his little thing with four here affects his relationship with Fa when he gets back up. And Rekoa and Emma, I think it's probably to some degree going to have cascading effects across his relationships. Yeah, Amuro will affect the way he interacts with all of the older male big brother or mentor figures. And then four will definitely affect the way he interacts with the women of Ayug. I'm, this is not about attachment theory at all, but <laughs> you brought up Fa and Fra and the mother to the special boy connection mm -hmm. between the two of them. And I think it's really 
interesting and really quite brilliant what Zeta Gundam does with the legacy of First Gundam here, because we haven't actually seen that much of Fa in Zeta Gundam. Mm -hmm. She hasn't been in that many episodes. She hasn't had that much to do. And frankly, she hasn't actually done that much Camille mothering stuff. We know that about her character because she's set up in that same parallel way with Fra. And so Zeta doesn't have to spend the time recreating that character, reinventing the wheel, because they just use the Fra markers, the (laughs) archetype for Fa. And it's like, oh, it's a shorthand for this character. We get, you know, one or two incidents where she's sort of looking after him and telling him how he should modulate his behavior and his obvious resentment of that, but not nearly as much as we get between Fra and Amaro. And yet we know she is the Fra of this series. And so we know, (laughs) we know all about her. (laughs) I'm curious now about Fra and Fa and their attachment styles. Taking on the role of surrogate mother suggests that there's something going on there, but I'm not sure what. We don't spend as much time with the adult white base crew in Zeta as we do with our new characters, so we don't get as much of a sense of them, but they all seem pretty secure, let's say. We hear Mirai talk a lot about her relationship with Bright. We know that Fra and Hayato are apart and expect to be apart for a long time, but aside from the natural, like, missing that closeness, this doesn't seem to cause either of them jealousy or fear. They're confident in the other person's, like, love and affection, and neither of them seems uncomfortable with the closeness of that. So they all, they all grew up to uh, have healthy ways of relating to other adults. Except Amaro. And maybe Kai. Who knows what Kai's up to. <laughs> I imagine most spies don't have incredibly healthy ways of relating to other people. Yeah, probably not. He was just so quick to bail. And I think probably 80% of it was not wanting to hang around that Quattro guy. Speaking of Quattro, definitely dismissive avoidance. (laughs) I don't need anybody. Yeah, and like all in on that. There's no conflict there. I'm glad we did this research here because it feels like the sort of framework that we are going to be revisiting at various points as we see more of the character relationships in Zeta and beyond. Next time on episode 2.21, Rocket Man, we cover Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam episode 20 and unrealistic expectations and unreasonable requests. What is Peltorchka's job? Pity, selfishness, and other womanly feelings that get a man killed. Curing migraines with motivation. Camille rolls a 20 to persuade. A carrot worth any price. Team Rocket blasting off again. Chekhov's booster. And, I'm sorry Camille, your princess is in another space castle. You will see the tears of time. Remember to do all of the podcast things. Subscribe and review Mobile Suit Breakdown wherever you get your podcasts. Then pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown on Patreon, where you can find great bonus content, get access to the MSB Discord, get exclusive MSB merchandise, and, you know, support the podcast. 
You can also follow at Gundam Podcast on Twitter and Instagram and like us at facebook.com slash Gundam Podcast for all kinds of extra content. And you should always check out our website, GundamPodcast.com, for all of our episodes, show notes, watch list, wish list, some other lists, and more. Plus, you can always email your questions, comments, and complaints to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or just shout your wrong Gundam opinion to us in person by coming to scenic New York City and yelling, Forget about Camille and Four. Wooder and Namikar are Zeta's OTP on any busy street corner. We will totally hear you. The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin, and the closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening. They don't do four. four. It's four. Four. Cinderella <laughs> four. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, I, I thought that was interesting, but it's not four. It's four. Head on. Apply directly to the cyber new type. I'm getting real, real sick of people slapping Camille around. Which you can't. How does it possibly keep getting louder? Can I edit this conversation so it sounds like you agree with me 100%? No. (laughs) That would not be allowed. That would be unethical. Yes, it would. Also, I think it's more interesting when we disagree. I'm Tom. I'm a lifelong Gundam fan and didn't write one of these (laughs) this week. My Ainsworth, my Ainsworth's, Ainsworth's is hard to say. Deleted. (laughs) But deleted. I am an island. It's there. It's fun. It is fun.